Welcoman, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week, we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week, we'll be discussing Passing Strange. But first, how are we doing? I'm going to tell you how I'm doing. I'm sick. <laughs> I'm still technically sick. I think I am on the upswing. I had trouble swallowing. Ladies. I had trouble swallowing. Gentlemen. I was flushed. I had low energy. I wasn't flushed. Now I'm just making things up. <laughs> now I'm just a man who wants attention. I was flushed. Ah! So on top of everything, my voice was going in and out earlier this week. And if I start to sound like a prepubescent Lauren Bacall, I guess is what I'm trying to cobble together in terms of a comparison. Be charitable. Take pity on me. I didn't really have that much of an idea in the way of a a segment here up top, a fun little moment for us. Of course, I want to check in with you. I've just been complaining about my sickness. I hope you're not sick. I hope that if you are, you are also in the upswing. I hope you are getting better. I did talk to Patty a little earlier today, and she thought that this was all part of a gimmick, and I told her that this is not true. I genuinely had some suggestions for baby names, and she said, is this for the podcast? Are you trying to drum up some sort of opening segment for the podcast. I said, no, that's not what I'm doing. Listen up, listeners. I said to Patty, our wonderful producer, she's having a baby, she's pregnant, we know this. I said to her, I have a couple of baby name suggestions for you. And she said, do these have anything to do with musical theater? And I said, no. And my first suggestion was Nathan Detroit. I said, divorce it from the original context and you know for a fact it's a good name. It's a very solid name for a young man. She said, no. And I said, fine. And then I said, what about Adelaide's Lament? And she said, that's not a full name. It's just not, you know that's not a full name. And then we started talking about why Adelaide, the character from Guys and Dolls, duh, why she doesn't have a last name. And I said, I don't know. But Adelaide's Lament is a good combination name. Adelaide's Lament, and then insert Patty's last name. I'm not going to tell you her last name. That is information that she is has every right to keep to herself. So Adelaide's Lament, good combination name, right? She said, No. And I said, that's ridiculous. And then I said, Timothy Chalamet for a boy. She said, that's already a person. And I said, I don't think so. And then she said, I think it is. And then we Googled it. Turns out she's right. Okay, I admit it. I put my hands to the sky. I wave a little white flag. (sighs) So I've been sick, as I said. I... I put a little honey in my 5678 coffee today, thinking that that would... Okay, you did did this as well, Patty. Do you like it? The honey in the... 5678 coffee, I think we made a mistake. Because the fact is... 5678 Coffee stands on its own. You don't really need any additives. I've seen people try and add, you know, the, the standard creams and sugars and stuff like that to 5678. And I, I say to them, don't, don't do that. I know you're used to it. But the richness, the strength of the coffee, it's there. It's coming right out of the bag. I, I mean, I enjoy a sweet additive and it's helping my voice a little bit. How do I sound? But at the end of the day, I, I think I made a mistake. I apologize, 5678 Coffee. I should have trusted you. And from here on out, I'm not going to add anything. I did have another idea for the opening segment. On my bookshelf is a copy of the libretto, the book, of a musical. And it's Doonesbury the Musical. It's the script and lyrics for Doonesbury the Musical. If you're not familiar with Doonesbury, it is a not funny comic strip that's been running for about, I don't know, 70 fucking years at this point. I think it's about two years old. 
older than Beetle Bailey. I don't know. And it's very politically charged, and they turned it into a musical. And the reason you've never heard of that is because uh, it didn't do well. (laughs) I don't believe there's a cast recording, so I have no idea how the music sounds. But I can read the lyrics, I can pretend, I can make up melodies. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do a reading from the libretto of Doonesbury the Musical. That would be funny. And then I read the libretto of Doonesbury the Musical again, and I realized, this isn't funny. (laughs) This isn't going to be entertaining for anyone. The opening scene, it's a scrim, and the scrim is an image of the White House, and we hear voiceover. It's a a scene between a couple of reporters and Reagan. It's just so moldy. It's like you dragged it out of a garage, and there's an oil slick underneath it. And that was my experience sort of re-engaging with the libretto of Doonesbury the Musical. Let's talk about the show that we're here to talk about today. Passing Strange is the 2008 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It opened on February 28th, 2008 at the Belasco Theater and ran for 165 performances. The book and lyrics are by Stu. Stu is, that's his stage name, stands alone, Stu. He formed, uh, just to give you a little bit of a background on him, he formed a band known as The Negro Problem in the early 90s. And since the creation of Passing Strange has continued to work in theater, I read an article about how he created uh, a special score for a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream at one point. Uh, I want to play a quick clip of one of his uh, songs. This is from the band The Negro Problem, and it is their cover of MacArthur Park. So that gives you that gives you a, a good idea as to what their sound is, uh, the sound that he was taking into the creation of this stage musical. The music that would be by Stu and Heidi Rodewald. Uh, she does perform in the onstage band. Heidi and Stu are longtime collaborators. Heidi joined the Negro Problem in 1997, according to her biography and has written for both the band and Stu as a solo artist. The director of the original production was Annie Dorson, the choreographer was Carol Armitage, and the original cast, and I made a note of this, I'm going to break down every single person, I'm going to give you their names, because every single person in this cast is absolutely fantastic. Stu himself is on stage, uh, Daniel Breaker, Issa Davis, Coleman Domingo, who you might know from the recent film release, If Bill Street Could Talk, Uh, Deidre Aziza, Rebecca Jones, and Chad Goodrich. Additional Tony nods for Passing Strange during that ceremony included a win. It did win one Tony Award, uh, not for Best Musical, but for Best Book of a Musical. It was also nominated for Best Original Score, Best Performance by a Leading Actor in a Musical. That nomination went to Stu. Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical. That went to Daniel Breaker. Best Performance by a Featured Actress in a Musical, uh, Deidre Aziza. And Best Orchestrations, Stu and Heidi Rodewald. Now, Stu, who had never before written for the stage, for the theater, was inspired when reading about the Globe Theater and how Shakespearean productions were performed in front of uh, very rowdy crowds. Uh, This reminded him of a rock audience and the atmosphere that surrounds that sort of crowd, and he decided that he wanted to bring the energy of a rock audience into a theater setting. A key quote from Stu. I want to throw out this quote from Stu regarding the creation of that show. Uh, Quote, 
We knew we were going to invent something, because we kind of knew this hadn't been done before. The goal being to bring the actual music that one hears in a club to the stage, not through some kind of theatrical musical theater filter. This quote makes a lot of sense when you see the show in full. There are more than a few jokes uh, taking jabs at cornball old-fashioned musical theater. There are uh, multiple statements from Stu uh, that make it clear that this is not a show for that type of Broadway fan. Uh, They very much, again, are trying to bring a new sound, a new style and atmosphere into a Broadway venue. So, great. When I read that quote, I couldn't help but think about my Big River commentary from last week. And I I started to question myself. I asked, did Roger Miller truly oversee an unsuccessful marriage of his Nashville sound and Broadway? Or did he, like Stu, choose to represent himself without a filter? Maybe Roger Miller also rejected that idea of trying to uh, meet Broadway halfway, and maybe he just wanted to bring his own style to the table without any compromises. Maybe I'm just completely ignorant in that, and the criticisms I had last week aren't entirely warranted. Is it better that Stu made it clear from the outset that he had no intention of changing his sound? Yes, I mean, I'm glad that that quote exists, as it helps me to better approach the material and know what he's expecting of me, uh, what I can expect from the performance. This isn't Cole Porter's Kiss Me Kate Broadway. This is Stu's Broadway, and that's great. I'm totally centered for that. Unfortunately, it would seem that audiences weren't interested in Stu's Broadway when you consider the 165 performance run of Passing Strange. Sometimes taking the risk of bringing a non-Broadway sound, big air quotes, I'm putting big air quotes around non-Broadway sound because we don't really want to play too rigid with what is or is not considered Broadway. So when I say non-Broadway, you can also easily substitute that phrase for the phrase non-white because I think a lot of people think of the old school Broadway sound as very uh, old fashioned. And by that, I mean white, uh, milk toast, bland. Uh, and I, I would not disagree with them on that at all. Uh, some, so sometimes bringing a non-Broadway quote-unquote sound to a Broadway stage can be fruitful. I mean, look at Lin-Manuel Miranda's uh, Hamilton or the show that made his career in the Heights, which was another nominee right alongside Passing Strange in 2008. And of course, in the Heights wound up taking home the prize of Best Musical during that ceremony. Hamilton and in the Heights, both very popular popular, bringing rap to the Broadway stage. Sometimes the relationship between the two uh, is unsuccessful. A great example of that is the Tupac Shakur jukebox musical, Holler If You Hear Me, which only ran on Broadway for 36 performances in 2014. It's a gamble. I mean, maybe with Passing Strange, it was marketed in such a way that people became confused and thought it was, you know, a special event. Maybe they thought it was a concert. Or maybe tourists, white tourists, simply didn't light up at the idea of hearing rock when they could be going to hear something like Wicked. In any case, Passing Strange deserved a lot more credit than it initially got, and I I wish things hadn't turned out the way it did for that show, because I'm going to keep saying it, I'm just going to keep ladling on the praise. It's a fantastic show, and I'm I'm so excited to talk about it. Let's, Let's dive into the plot. Stu himself, as I said, is on stage. He's leading the band. Uh, Heidi is in the band. She's, I believe, playing uh, bass. I believe she's on bass guitar. Uh, Stu is playing a version of himself. He is sort of the overseer, the MC, 
the narrator, and he's overseeing a story about a character known only as the youth. This young character is only given that label. We never know his name beyond that. And at the beginning of the story, the youth is finding himself in this very contentious relationship with his mother, played by Issa Davis. The youth is played by David Breaker. Uh, The mother wants the youth to go to church with her, this Baptist church, and he is resisting with every ounce of his being. The youth uh, at the top of the show is interested in Zen Buddhism, and he's sort of using that as a way to distance himself from his mother. Despite this, he does ultimately get dragged to a Baptist mass where they are almost immediately judged because the youth is 14 years old, he's never been baptized, and the church that they go to is really nothing more than a fashion show. There's an entire number dedicated to the idea that this is just a place for people to go in their finest outfits and judge everyone else. (laughs) They're looking at your outfit, they're questioning your choices, they're questioning your background, where you come from, how much money you make, and the youth is disgusted by this. He is really depressed and bummed out by this supposedly holy place and how unholy it is. Uh, But he is inspired by a gospel performance in the middle of this mass and he is swept up and he realizes, oh, I know rock music and and this performance in the middle of this mass, it's reminding me of a concert. I, I love this. This is fantastic. But just as he's getting, you know, within an inch of relating to baptism and the church, when he's getting excited about it for the very first time in his life, his mother slaps him. He becomes so involved in the in the celebration that she's embarrassed by him. She's embarrassed by his behavior and she slaps him. And that immediately brings him back down to earth. And it reminds him of how isolated he feels from not only his mother, but from everyone else around him. And he's really disgusted by that. Uh, ultimately, he is uh, brought into a choir at the church only <laughs> only because there is a very attractive young girl in the choir already. And when she sort of gives him the eye, he decides, okay, I'll join the choir. <laughs> I am interested in music. This, this may not be such a bad situation. It is there in the choir that he meets Franklin Jones, played by Coleman Domingo. And I can't stress this enough. Coleman Domingo is, oh, he's a treasure in this from moment one. He plays this character. It's the son of the reverend at this Baptist church. And the name of the character is Franklin Jones. Franklin Jones is uh, the leader of the choir, the youth choir. And he is wildly effeminate and ultimately secretly gay. Again, very publicly effeminate, but I think everyone within the church sort of dismisses it as this flamboyance, this ecstasy, this enthusiasm that comes from being so religious. In truth, Franklin Jones is very closeted and he has this desperate yearning to break out of the church and lead a very different life. He tells the youth this while the youth and Franklin Jones and a couple of the other kids are hanging out in his his VW bug on a hill and they're smoking pot in this bug and there is this beautiful scene where Franklin Jones, he's comparing the options of slaves and cowards, and he's talking about how slaves have options, escape, revolution, and death. He doesn't see himself as a slave. He doesn't necessarily see himself uh, chained to the church where he, you know, leads uh, a, a, a double life, a straight life, a, a very repressed life. He, he has made that choice to stay there and not venture out into the world and, and 
you know, make new decisions because he's a coward. Oh, I'm, not, I'm really not doing this scene justice. I'm going to tell you right now, the only reason I have a full context for this show is because Spike Lee filmed the final performance of the Broadway run. If you think to yourself, I'm not doing this justice, you're absolutely right. This scene between the youth and Franklin Jones is amazing. Spike Lee shoves the camera into the faces of all of these actors, and you can see the, the sweat that's pouring out of them. The scene is just amazing because the youth realizes in that moment, I, I want to travel. I want to go out and see the world. I want something more than the life I've been leading as a kid here in California. And so he decides that he's going to form with, with some of the kids from the choir. They're going to break out of the choir. They're never going back. And they form this punk band called the Stereotypes. And they're rehearsing this uh, <laughs> very funny song that sort of boils down to the youth giving a finger to everyone in his life. Anyone who tries to define his blackness, anyone who tries to define him spiritually, uh, especially his mother. I mean, more than anyone, his mother is on the top of that list. When Franklin shows up, he has this announcement. He, he sort of interrupts this rehearsal of the stereotypes to tell them, oh, you know, we're going to have an entire Sunday mass to ourselves, dedicated to the youth choir. So I've got all of these ideas. And everyone, including the youth, immediately tears him down they make fun of him, and they basically say, fuck you. We're not going to be like you. You've already shown to us and revealed to us way too much about yourself. And what we've seen is that you're pathetic. They, I mean, the youth especially turns on him. This is one of the many turns that the youth has where the people in his life who have inspired him sheltered him, protected him, people he has benefited from, he turns on them instantly with this casual cruelty that I think only comes with youth. He is so invested in his hastily sketched principles that he thinks it's okay to essentially tell Franklin, go fuck yourself. I don't want to be in your choir. I'm going to be in this band. I'm going to be a huge success. I'm going to go out into the world and you're going to stay here and rot. No, get out of here. And Franklin Jones just sort of disappears from the story. Oh, it's so sad. Uh, the youth <laughs> sees the stereotypes evaporate almost instantly. The band doesn't stay together fully formed for very long uh, because there's a lot of infighting and one of the members panics and thinks that they're never going to make it. So the youth kicks him out. And at that point, the entire band falls apart. Uh, the youth has been saving money and he decides that he is going to go to Amsterdam. And it is there that he really gets into the drug scene and he meets a woman named Mariana and she gives him her keys, the keys to her flat. And she says, you can stay with me and you can be with me, and this is your family now. The people of Amsterdam are so happy. This is a paradise. All I want for you to be is someone who is just happy here. And for a while, the youth is. He enjoys the very casual lifestyle, the sort of carnal pleasures that Amsterdam brings. He has a lot of sex. He has a lot of threesomes. He has sex with men and women. But ultimately, he gets bored. And just when Mariana starts to think their relationship is becoming something more than a theme park ride, something to be enjoyed purely on a surface level, he decides he's going to leave. And man, once again, the youth, it's so great. The book is, I'm glad that it won for the book because there are, oh my God, the, the number of scenes that are just so great. It's, 
I can't even begin to calculate how many there are. The youth says to Mariana, I'm going to Berlin because there's nothing more to complain about. I don't have anything to complain about. And if I'm ever going to be a real musician, a real artist, I need something to complain about. Mariana is very visibly deflated and disappointed and heartbroken. And the youth right before he leaves says something to the effect of, hey, if I don't like Berlin, I could just come back, right? Like she's a toy, that he's putting down for a moment and may never think to pick up again. But you'll be here, right? You'll be around. You're a person that I can just sort of assume will never forget about me and, and will be able to lock in with me on the same wavelength, right? If I get bored. And to Mariana's credit, I love it. In this very quiet moment, she takes the keys to her flat back and she just says no. And she vanishes from the story because we're following the youth and he is on this very ragged yet ironclad path this very this very rigid path to success very specifically throughout this whole show the youth is trying to achieve he's trying to capture something known as the real it is a concept that is coined as such it is known as the real uh, he thinks he may have found it uh, in church, but that's not true. He thinks he may have found it in the stereotypes. That's not true. He doesn't find it in Amsterdam. And so he thinks that he's going to find it in Berlin. And the real as defined essentially means validation, affirmation, success. It's what every artist, it's what every person wants on some level. And that is what this young person is trying so desperately to capture. In Berlin, he encounters a lot of riots. Uh, he encounters a group of revolutionary artists. They, they have formed a group known as Nauhaus, and he wants to fit in with them. He wants to prove that he too has anger and pain that he can bring to this performance artist table. And in order to impress them and one of its members, this woman named Desi, uh, played by Rebecca Jones. Oh, I gotta go back. Gotta jump back real quick. Gotta give credit where it's due. Deidre Aziza plays Mariana. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. So is Rebecca Jones as Desi. This is the latest in his string of romantic interests. In order to impress her and the group, he basically minstrels himself. He, pu he puts on this very ridiculous ghetto aesthetic and he says, you need me. You need me to be a part of this group of performance artists because I'm black and I come from the ghetto. I have seen shit that you can never believe. I know you're from Berlin and I know you've participated in riots, but you should see the streets that I come from. And the show makes a very funny point of juxtaposing his speech with the reality. They keep cutting back to his mother, these flashback moments of his purely middle class, very like comfortable upbringing. It's very funny. Desi sees through this. She knows that this mask that he's putting on, it's not only false, it's patently false, but it's shameful. And she tries to bring this up despite his popularity within the group. She has asked him, you know, recently, will you come to visit my parents? Will you meet my parents for Christmas? Because every, despite their anger, despite their middle fingers to the system, these performance artists in Berlin all go home for Christmas. But he doesn't want to go with Desi. He, he, he says straight up, I don't want to meet your redneck parents in your redneck Berlin village. He's furious because on Christmas Day, he was going to perform the seven-hour elegy dedicated to her. And she says, I don't want to be a song. I want to be loved. I love that line. That's a direct line. I don't want to be a song. I want to be loved. And the mother 
in an abstract, very theatrical moment later, repeats that line. She says, I don't want to be a song. Desi and the youth talk about their parents and their home lives. Desi says, you know, when I go home, I feel so alone because no one there really understands me. I can't really say anything about my fears or my dreams or my concerns. And he says, well, then why go back if they don't understand you? And she says, because they do love me. And I, 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 it's inferred that she forgives them for their limitations, their inabilities, how they were brought up. She, she sort of allows for that. There's a great allowance that she gives to the people in her life. But the youth doesn't do that. He's not willing to give people a chance to change. He just assumes that there is no point. And he resists Desi's love. He says, I, I'm not going to change for you. And it is at this point that after a few years of avoiding his mother, he discovers that his mother has passed away. And it is when he goes back to America and attends her funeral that the youth and Stu, who again has been narrating this entire odyssey, that's when they encounter each other for the first time on stage. And they have this back and forth, this dialogue, this lyrical argument about who is more in the right. Because Stu, again, very funny line, Stu tells the audience that his entire life, all of the consequences of his life are based on the ideas and decisions of a stoned teenager. And the Stu, uh, Stu tries to impart to the youth that the only thing that really matters is love. And we sort of end on that note. It's this very quiet, contemplative note. The youth's pursuit of the real hurts those who try to show him that only love is going to get you through the day, not abstract, ethereal, ephemeral pursuits. That is an amazing spine for a show. This is everything that you want Rent to be. If you're a skeptical, you know, if you have standards, (laughs) you'll you'll understand that Rent is trying to tackle a lot of ideas all at once, and it it, kind of half-bakes all of them. Passing Strange is a much better meditation on the artist and their relationship with the people around them, the purpose of art, the consequences of leading the life and the lifestyle of an artist. Ooh, it's really good. I'm going to compare it to a few other shows from the history of musical theater. Uh, When I started reading about the plot via Wikipedia, it reminded me of more than a few shows. These are all from the 60s and 70s. Back in the 60s and 70s, I think we were very interested in exploring ideas of youth and how it, it can oftentimes harden and wither in the face of experience. And we did that via abstract concepts, characters that were uh, sketched in such a way that they didn't have proper names. They were only known as uh, sort of labels, caricatures, stereotypes. One of them is The Fantastics. Uh, This is the longest running off-Broadway musical. Uh, There is a character uh, named El Gallo in The Fantastics who serves as the narrator. He's a lot like Stu. And he relates the tale of a young couple Matt and Louisa. Uh, In this instance, the young people do have proper names, I should say. Uh, And they are challenged by their exploration of a world beyond their front yards. So once they, again, it's like the youth, once they step out beyond their initial sheltered lives, they learn that uh, their principles, which they once thought were so uh, resolute and so steadfast are actually very easily challenged and the, and the world that they encounter is much more complicated, but they benefit from that. There's a lot of sadness and pain that comes with that experience, but they are all the better for it in the end. 
the same team behind the Fantastics would go on in 1969 to premiere a musical known as Celebration. Uh, that also has a narrator, this sort of uh, omnipresent godlike character known as Potemkin, and there's a representational protagonist known only as Orphan. I love that. It's so 60s. <laughs> What shall our main character be named? We shall call him only Orphan. <laughs> he, he represents the youth, he does. <laughs> uh, Dude, the Highway Life is uh, from 1972. This was a sort of spiritual sequel slash successor to the show Hair. Uh, it pulls a great deal from the Bible. Uh, the main character, Dude, is sort of cast in the role of the first child who leaves his parents behind to experiment with sex and drugs, much like in Passing Strange, before finding God and a happy ending. That's how Dude kind of wraps up. There is a devil-like character known as Zero in that show, but I don't believe he's a, a proper narrator. Uh, so it's not really a one-to-one comparison to Stu in that instance. And then finally, Pippin, of course. Uh, I'm sure many of you might be familiar with Pippin from 1972. This, again, has an omnipresent narrator known as the leading player, and he oversees, comments on, and affects the path and decisions of the main character, Pippin, uh, who also uh, <laughs> discovers at a certain point that sex is cool, but is sex everything? Hmm, maybe there's more to life than just coming. <laughs> That's the arc of Pippin. He questions whether or not life should just be about coming. While researching Passing Strange, I interacted with the 2008 original Broadway cast album. Spike Lee's filming of the final performance on Broadway of Passing Strange, that's known as Passing Strange the Movie. You can rent that through iTunes, and I, I'm sure through Amazon. I rented it through iTunes. A fantastic experience. I, I, I'll just say it again. I love how much fucking sweat is captured by this filming. Uh, I believe he uses 14 different cameras, and it's just great. It's fantastic. You have to watch it. If you're listening to this and you enjoy musical theater, if you're like me and only sort of kind of understood that Passing Strange was even a show, you owe it to yourself to dig into this. Oh, you're, you're not going to regret it. That's a sterling recommendation from the musical man. And of course, I also watched the clip from the Tony's performance in which Stu, the band, and the cast perform. Uh, let's get a little bit into the individual songs. Now, uh, I should say the cast album... Uh, it's 24 tracks long, so I'm not going to do a uh, track-by-track breakdown like I have in the past. Uh, the, I, I should also say the cast album is not the full score. If you watch the movie directed by Spike Lee, you'll realize uh, about 20% of the music was cut, I believe, to just sort of condense the album and get it onto one disc. You're not really getting the full experience if you just stick with the original album. I was a little underwhelmed, actually, just listening to the album. It was only until I saw the full performance that I got the full experience and was affected on such a, a deep personal level. So to get into these songs, the, the highlights for me include the prologue, uh, which is known as We Might Play All Night. You don't know me and I don't know you. So let's cut to the chase. The name is Stu. And I'll be narrating this gig so just sit tight. We might play all night. This is where Stu and the band make it very clear that they are meta-characters. They stand both within and outside of the narrative that we're about to experience. Very funny. Right from the get-go, you understand that Stu is 
incredibly charming. And for a man who I have to assume had no onstage credits before Passing Strange, well, of course, as a performer in general within the music scene, he has experience on stage. But the way that he performs his own material, it's just, it's really astonishing because consider how many people write for themselves and can't, for so for one reason or another, they can't actually communicate their own depth of feeling, their warmth, their humor. It, it, something doesn't translate. It, it, it kind of it's baffling sometimes when people can't cross the finish line with their own material. But man, Stu runs with it. He's he's utterly fantastic, absolutely fabulous. Uh, so that's the prologue. Uh, I really liked uh, the track Church Blues Revelation. <laughs> This is the track uh, where we get the line, uh, music is the freight train in which God travels. That was the first little snippet of music that really got me. For the longest time, I, I remember thinking, okay, I've listened to the album, but is there anything hummable here? Is there anything that really sticks with me just on a sheer catchy sound level? This show has a really fun time with repetition. I remember talking about Big River last week and how repetition was so exhausting within that show because it was like a droning metronome. But here, because this is pure rock that we're talking about, it's just, it's nothing short of infinitely propulsive. It doubles back on itself in, in so many instances, but it never gets old. Really great. Fantastic. Uh, Soul Brother <laughs> is uh, the, the song that the stereotypes are rehearsing in the youth's garage. Ladies and jerks. We are the stereotypes. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. I'm at war with Negro Morris. I'm at war with ghetto norms. My mother stands in doorways waving me to conform. Be a good football player, snazzy dressing brother. So the sisters won't be able to tell me from the others. Yeah, I'm a soul brother. I've been this motherfucker. Yeah, I'm a soul brother. I've been this motherfucker. Yeah, I'm a soul brother. I've been this motherfucker. I find it to be very funny. And I know that the youth is coming from this perspective of, you know, don't tell me how to be black. Don't tell me how to be a man. Don't tell me how to do fuck all nothing. And of course, the, the, I can't relate ultimately to the idea of don't tell me how to be black. But as someone who grew up wanting to be in theater, wanting to write plays for the longest time, I used my product, uh, my writing to uh, really sort through some very, <laughs> some very angry, depressive feelings. And I came from a, a fairly comfortable background as well. So I'm sure many older people had, and I, especially in college, my poor professors, I, I'm sure many people had the attitude of, what does this, I'm sorry, what do you have to be so angry about? Oh, right. Generally, people just don't understand you. <laughs> oh, and you're gay. Yes, because no one else has ever been gay. <laughs> Surely I could never relate to the frustrations you might have felt in, in high school and now college. <laughs> this anger that comes out of these very young characters, you can't help but 
sit in the audience, sit from the viewer's perspective and think, well, one day they're going to look back on this and think to themselves, I'm glad that we did it. I'm glad that we were in this band. And I'm glad that like, I don't necessarily see myself as that person anymore. I don't have the same feelings. I didn't let myself be trapped by that anger, by that bitterness and resentment. And now I can see things from all different types of perspectives. Um, I think the healthiest place to be at as an adult is when you just let people have that. Uh, and certainly uh, the people in my life did. <laughs> they let me have a venue to sort of air my grievances and, and get that shit worked through my system, that bile. You have to. You just have to. When young people are part of a uh, minority community and they feel like they are not being represented because they aren't and because they're not being heard by a great number of people, you have to let them in some way. Uh, no matter how it comes out, they've got to express that shit. And uh, I think the best place to be in is you don't laugh at the stereotypes because you think they're stupid. You laugh at them because hopefully you were them and you understand where they're coming from. And you're not mocking them. It's just, it's highly, it's 100% wholly relatable. The mom song, oh my God. So mom song is the first song I truly loved. This is sung by the youth's mom. And I'm gonna play uh, my favorite chunk now. I'm hardly afraid of your new world, strange design. Why don't you make room for me as I made room for you and mine? See, I've been running from this world for far longer than you, but I didn't know. Yours and mine, and that was only yesterday, you see. Now you've got your own thing, and it does not include me. I'm not a parent, so I can't, you know, entirely relate to this idea of seeing this young person pull away from you. But I, of course, it's like so many people in the past, I have been the young person who has pulled away, not called enough, uh, resented, and mocked when my family has tried to reach out, I think I, I, I oftentimes have had the reaction of, you're asking too much. You're asking too much of me. I can't be this perfect son. I can't be this perfect person for you. By pulling away so harshly, I, I rip at them and I tear at them. I, I, I know that, like the youth, I have been very casually cruel in the past. And when she says, why don't you make room for me as I made room for you in mine? My life changed because of you, and I just wish that yours could change a little bit. But when you're young, you just think to yourself, I got it figured out, and if I don't have it figured out, I don't fucking need you. I don't need you or anyone else older than me telling me how to fucking do it. When you do that, you can very easily fall into the trap of becoming a bitter person your entire life. And you become a person who just says, no, fuck you, get away from me your entire life life. You can stay youthful in that way. You might age physically, but if you don't age mentally in some way, that's royally fucked up. And you deserve to be isolated. You might think you're isolated when you're young, but when you get older and you keep acting like that, that that's a big takeaway from this show for me. Um, now, big asterisk, sometimes you need to cut ties with your family because they don't genuinely love you and they mistreat you. Uh, that's, that's the case for many people. So of course, I want to throw that out there. Uh, but from where Stu is coming from, his story, his his background, his perspective, I can completely relate 
to his feelings of guilt in regard to his mother. The character of Mariana, played by Deidre Aziza again, has an entire song de- dedicated to that moment where she gives the youth the keys to her flat. It's called Keys Mariana. The roommate's gone to Spain. The place is sloppy. It's insane, but... The sun shines through big windows Only Dracula would complain No one's ever there, you'll have your peace There's a view and a bottle of gin She's back in, oh, two or three weeks Her room would be all yours till then So here's the keys My keys Here is my address, you see It's really quite a mess But take them, please My keys Deidre Aziza's voice on this track is at once so ethereal and bracing. It's kind, it's inviting, it's seductive, it's protective. The way she describes her messy flat with this vocal smile, she has this smile through her singing. And the way she describes her messy apartment, it makes it really does make it sound like a paradise. Uh, I, I love it. And, and towards the end of this, the, the youth sings. And after so long, feeling so alone, I feel like picking up the phone and calling up that place called home to say I found a brand new family where I can be that thing called me. To say I found a brand new family. That's so casually cruel. This idea that he wants to call them up and say, I officially don't need you anymore. And everything that you ever gave me doesn't really matter anymore. Oh, it breaks my heart when he says that, to say I found a brand new family. We have to leave our homes. I understand that. We have to find out what we're capable of on our own two feet, on our own terms. I just wish it didn't break people's hearts. (laughs) I wish we didn't have to leave anybody behind. I wish we didn't have to resent. And pull away from the people that got us started. I used to think that I needed to burn bridges if I was ever going to, you know, truly move forward. I, I, w- I would think to myself, build a home. When that home doesn't work anymore, burn it down. Walk away. Never think about it again. I treated people like that. I burned relationships to the ground, friendships. And so this this show brought all of that stuff back to me and it really made me question those decisions. And that's, that is a very effective... That's art is supposed to do that to you. Truly effective, uh, long-term successful art. That's that is its direct effect. So thank you very much, Stu, and thank you very much, Passing Strange. That's inside is just a lie. 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 Ideas are dependable, as a new one every week. Emotions are expendable because they aren't unique. Ideas are dependable, as a new one every week. Emotions are expendable because they aren't unique. Culture is cosmetic. Culture is cosmetic. Culture is cosmetic. What's inside is just a lie slash and now I'm ready to explode. God, it's so fucking funny. 
Coleman Domingo is brilliant in this. His sheer jaw gnashing, he is chewing the scenery as both Franklin and this new character, Mr. Venus, who is within this Berlin group of performance artists. The physicality, the way he just sort of attacks the audience, you have to watch the movie. You have to rent it today. I'm telling you, you have to watch right now. He's so fucking funny. Uh, An identity... Uh, is this comes out of a very funny book scene. This song's come out of the song comes out of this book scene where the artist revolutionaries of the now house group essentially say, fuck you to the show that we've been watching. They have these very meta jokes about how heterosexual love lacks drama. And they're talking about (laughs) one of the women in the group says, Oh, and what about that song from earlier where the Dutch girl was singing about her fucking keys? I hated that. They're just, they're tearing the show apart. It's so funny. And they're talking about also how they hate the idea of a show where a small group of actors play every single character within the show, which is exactly the setup and the convention of Passing Strange. Meta humor works in really strong, concentrated doses, and that is proven here. Very funny book scene. And the song Identity, uh, this this is uh, as a result of the youth pretending to be a ghetto warrior. He's representing ghetto warrior America so he can secure a place for himself within this house of artists. And he allows himself to be tokenized for the sake of being legitimized. I wrote that down and then <laughs> I wrote down, he allows himself to be tokenized for the sake of being legitimized. And then I wrote down, ooh, what a turn of phrase, me. (laughs) I'm so clever. I'm so proud of myself. Do I get a good grade, teacher? Is he the postmodern line jockey sculpture? The black one. The black one. Or just a soul on a roll exploding your culture, that black one. An artist creates surfaces. And then comes the feed. He's doing the same thing Except I call the surface me He's dancing in a cage But I'm the one with the key And he's the black one The black one is the song where the youth is just straight up on stage. Daniel Breaker is going through all of these very stereotypical pop culture black dances. He's doing like he's doing the robot at one point. And he is at one point he adopts the physicality of like a fucking marionette puppet. And he's just delighting slash despairing in this idea that, oh, as long as I just act like I know everything about the history of my race and if I just keep pretending as if I'm a very smart person, these presumably very smart people are just going to eat it up. Wait, does that make them smart if they're buying this act? Oh God, Desi doesn't buy this act. How should I react? I should probably just tear her down too. That's what happens. He tears her down and Desi sings this beautiful song called Come Down Now. Let me chase away whatever's hurting you. Just have to ask it of me. Beautiful, beautiful fucking chunk of music. Rebecca Jones is just wonderful as Desi. Desi as a character 
is this wild-eyed, whirling dervish of a character that has too much energy. But when she goes low, when she sinks, she's magnetic. You want to watch her process and think on stage as this character. I could do it for hours. It's, It's fantastic. When she says, my love is more real than all your dreams... That's amazing. That's such a scary idea that I didn't realize that I I had been processing that for quite some time. This idea that the love that you discover for another person can wind up being more important than any sort of performative aspirational dreams that you ever had. When When you're by yourself and you're sort of forging your own path, you start to think to yourself, well, my career is the only thing that matters. My art, my writing, my my acting, my singing. And I have to, if I don't get the approval of other people, strangers, essentially, then what the fuck is the the point of my even living? I might as well just throw myself off a bridge. But when you find someone that you love unconditionally, that ends up topping everything. And that's insane. You sort of have to mourn the death of your old dreams. You sort of have to recontextualize them and and give them a much lower uh, tier on your hierarchy of needs. That's very scary because if you put a lot of emphasis on them for a very long time, it's hard to let go. The grip that you have on that can be pretty pretty choking and pretty claustrophobic. And I, I had to go through that. I, I, I'm glad that I went through that. I'm on the other end of it now. And I, I love the fact that I was able to come to that realization. It was hard. And it's very obviously hard for the character of the youth in this moment. But rather than uh, embrace Desi in that moment, he runs from her. Like he's run from everyone else in his life. All of the women in his life, I should say. Stu has an amazing song called Work Your Wound in which he says you lose track of her pain when you're working your wound. Ooh, I love that he says that to the youth. Uh, Stu sheds the narrator's skin in this moment to reflect on how his aspirations have left others in the dust. And it made me realize all over again just how great Stu is as the show's core. And he's so self-assured. He's so confident. I love him. Uh, Stu, I love you. I hope you hear this. <laughs> You'll never hear this, but I, I love it. I love you and your show. It's fantastic. Uh, Passing Phase is the song in which uh, it comes after the death of the youth's mother and the youth and Stu are, are sort of low-key simmer fighting with each other. Uh, Stu says to the youth, coming from a place of being older, that older perspective, he says, The only truth of youth is the grown-up consequences. See, song is a balm, but song cannot heal. You believed in it too long. Now I need something more than real. I need something more than real. Someday the chords of age will drown out the life you've been dreaming of. Then you'll be out on your ass and cursing, alas. Your song is just passing for love. My song was just passing for love. And you will never see her again. And I will never see her again. And we will never see her again. Ugh. What a heartbreaker. The two of them on stage, when, when you watch the movie, not if, when you watch the movie, they are just in a single spotlight during this exchange. It's great. You forget just how strong a spotlight can be on stage. And the, the show ends with Stu singing Love Like That. He talks about, again, uh, the, one of the lyrics is, too bad it takes so long to see. This idea that 
I wish it hadn't taken so long for me to be the person I am now. And I know I'm not perfect now, and I'm still struggling with a lot, but uh, I'm glad I, I, I survived. And I, despite all of my dumb decisions, despite all of the hurt that I've caused, I'm, I'm still here and I have the opportunity to keep growing and to keep getting better, not just as an artist. That, that has to ultimately more than likely come second to just the idea of being a good person and saying yes. You know, you don't say yes to everything, but you certainly don't say no to everything. And at the end of the day, you'll be happier if you just say yes to the people who genuinely care about you and treat you well. It's scary when they do, but it's a good kind of scary. Oh, at first, I thought this was anticlimactic. Love Like That, when I heard it on the album, I thought to myself, that's it? Really? It's, it kind of, it's a very short, soft, low-key way to end the show. Uh, but in full context, it, it's it's great. I, lo- I love how subtle it is, how soft that it is. And the bows, when you watch the movie, I used to think that you couldn't really watch a lot of theater filmed, but Spike Lee makes it electric, and he captures the emotion of that final performance of that very short Broadway run. You see how happy everyone is to have been involved. The audience is, like, rapturous. They're having the fucking best time of their lives They're fully supporting these people and their work. I loved it. Uh, That's it. That's my commentary for Passing Strange. We're now going to get a quick word from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away. Hello. Hello, Lewis. Oh, hello, Lewis. How you doing? Oh, did you lose some weight, Lewis? Oh, you were a little bigger when I came in here last time. Oh, I know. Last time. That was so long ago, Lewis. I think that was about 1932 that I came in. <laughs> Lewis, I'll have my usual table. Horace Vandergelder's on his way, but I would like to order a few things just in advance of his arrival, if you don't mind, Lewis. <laughs> it's so nice to see you, Lewis. I'd like to start out with a bit of a ginger tea scrub. Yes, and I'd like to have a chicken on a cart. I would like it on a cart, please. And I'd like a little bit of a turkey inside of it. A bit of a turducken chicken beef cow with a little moo-moo. Could you have a little side of the moo-moo sauce on the side? Fantastic. Thank you very much. I will have the asparagus standing up in a flower base. A flower base. Yes, not a flower vase, but a flower base. Lewis, can you do that for me? I have money, Lewis. I've married into money, Lewis, and I can't wait to spend it. Oh, I'll have a cookie. I'll have a cookie in a basket. Just a little basket carried by a small girl. Small girl hat with a hat of hair. Ooh, hair coming out of the hat, Lewis. Can you do that for me? Your favorite customer, Lewis. Ooh, and I am thirsty, Lewis. Could I have a cup of your finest coffee? And by finest coffee, I do believe you know what I mean, Lewis. Ah, that's right. Five, six, seven, eight coffee. The coffee that slides down my throat and into my belly and makes me go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Thank you so much, Lewis. Oh, if I didn't have my five, six, seven, eight coffee, I'd dissolve into a puddle of nothingness. I wouldn't be able to pair up anyone for my fucking life, Lewis. You are understand, Lewis. Oh, thank you, Lewis, so much. You're a doll. Let me kiss you on your cheeks. Oh, I'm so excited. Here it is. Oh, oh. It's as if someone knew that I was going to order five, six, seven, eight coffee. Oh, hello, Lewis, and hello, five, six, seven, eight coffee. You can count on it. Ah, it's me, Dolly Levi. Final thoughts on Passing Strange. Did it deserve to win over In the Heights? That's the big question. In 2008, In the Heights took home the Tony Award for Best Musical. The other two shows nominated that year were um, film adaptations, uh, film adaptations of the John Waters film Cry Baby. And then the other nominee that year was the... Uh, I'm not going to be too negative about it, <laughs> but it's it's a parody version of Xanadu. Yes, Xanadu, the 
the show that really probably should have been relegated to some sort of fringe festival in uh, Cincinnati. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, of course, Cry Baby and Xanadu did not deserve to win over the likes of In the Heights and Passing Strange. I wish that, you know, I've mentioned it before, there is one instance of two shows tying in the category of Best Musical and taking home awards uh, together as a pair. Uh, That would be Fiorello and The Sound of Music. I believe that was in 1960. I really wish history would have repeated itself within the heights because I don't really know how to say whether one should have won over the other. I love In the Heights. I only recently uh, fully dug into it. So ultimately, that's what I think. I I really think that, that, isn't that such a cop-out, though? The idea that the musical man who's here to make judgments, to make uh, these grand proclamations, is sitting there going, oh, I wish everyone could have won. I'm holding Mickey Mouse plates up to my head. So that's my big takeaway from that. In terms of ranking the show, of course, we only have two other shows to compare it to. Kiss Me Kate and Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Now, at first, I thought to myself, after I had just heard the album, just heard the album, and I had that thought of, you know, there's not really a lot here that I'm taking away musically. And after a few just moments, I thought, well, I guess I'm going to put Passing Strange between Kiss Me Kate and Big River because I do like uh, just how hummable and catchy Cole Porter's music is for Kiss Me Kate. But then I watched Spike Lee's filming of Passing Strange and everything fucking changed. Everything got thrown out the window and I realized absolutely not. Passing Strange for now is the number one musical on this sheet followed by Kiss Me Kate and right at the bottom, Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Congratulations, Passing Strange. You are the king of the mountain. I don't know how long it'll last. I I honestly don't know what's going to topple you. It's going to have to be something that has as much ambition, as much grace, and uh, something that is as fun as you. So I I, I hold you up as a glittering symbol of achievement. Show-related ephemera? I don't got it. I don't got anything. I couldn't, you know, I I highly doubt if anything exists uh, where songs from Passing Strange were recontextualized for commercials or other media. Uh, So we're going to skip that for this week. Hopefully next week's show will give us something uh, really nice and juicy to dig into. Something as good as that re-fucking-diculous Mark Twain commercial. How you doing, I'm Mark Twain. How'd you like to be on the riverboat? Uh, To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rodgers and Hammerstein show, She Killed Me on a Tuesday. Everyone ready to take a ride on the musical carousel? All right, fantastic. Let's go. Okay, I'm skimming through. I know where I need to go. I have just stepped off of the musical carousel. I am approaching our next show. Let us find out what it is. Uh Uh-oh, uh-oh. I know what it is, and I'm going to tell you right now. It's a nominee from the 1993 Tony Ceremony. It did not win, and that would be... The Goodbye Girl. That's right. I believe the stars of that show were none other than Martin Short and Bernadette Peters. Who doesn't want to watch Martin Short and Bernadette Peters fall in love? 
Oh, goodness. The Goodbye Girl. That's our next show. Oh, fantastic. I, I, I couldn't be more excited. Thank you so much for listening to this, the latest episode of The Musical Man. If you're subscribing to us through iTunes and you have yet to write a five-star review, oh, I would love it so much. I'm so grateful to everyone who has already done as such. Again, search for us in the iTunes store, leave a five-star rating, and in conjunction with that, use your words. Write a five-star review that I can read again and again and again. You have no idea how often I have reread the reviews that already exist. So please, add to the pile. We're on Podbean. You can stream through Podbean at musicalmanpod.podbean.com. We are also available on Spotify and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod. Please like and retweet to help spread the word. You can also email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts about Passing Strange, if you watched the movie as a result of this and want to tell me what you thought about it, love to hear about that. I would like to thank Alex Green for our logo and Zach Little for our music. Oh! (laughs) Took me aback this week. (laughs) Well, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. <laughs>